Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the Chair of the Council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their Elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today is Assistant Commissioner Scott Cook of the New South Wales Police. Scott is going to talk to us about the history of the police in New South Wales, which has some quite interesting features, but he's also going to talk to us about the role of police prosecutors in a sentencing hearing. Welcome, Scott. Good morning. Thank you, Peter. Scott, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How long have you been in the police force? So I've been in the police force for about 34 years. I joined in 1988 and um, I spent some time as a a local police officer um, dealing with young people and others in in local community context. And um, it was during that time I became a, a detective. I studied and trained to be a detective. And then I worked a large part of my career then as a detective often in and out of courts and coroner's court, and supreme court, and district court and of course local courts. Um, later in my career, more recently, I became uh, the commander of the prosecution's command. Um, I've now moved on from there. However, uh, during that time at prosecutions, I was intimately involved with the director of public prosecution and others in, in the space of the courts. And I think you're also the police representative on the sentencing council. Yes, that's correct, and it was through my appointment in the Prosecution's Command that I was nominated to be part of the Council. Now, can we go back a long way in history? Can you just tell us uh, how the police force came to exist in New South Wales? Uh, just a potted version of the 19th century, if you can. Yes, it's certainly an interesting history. The, uh, the Royal Marines, when, when, the, um, when the colony of New South Wales was established, the Royal Marines were undertaking policing functions and they weren't particularly good at it. Um, and so uh, early on there was a night watch formed by um, the local governor and there were 12 well-behaved convicts who who got to be the night watch and that, that was the the embryo of the New South Wales... Was that, was that sort of 11 o'clock and all as well? I, I imagine, days? yeah. I, I, well, I'd have to imagine what it was like. I don't yeah. know, but, yeah, so I think... Um, the New South Wales police roots are, as convicts who yeah. were the better of the convicts, yeah. appointed to look after the others. And so that, that's where we started. And then in 1810, Governor Macquarie uh, reorganised the police force, setting up basic functions and so on. Um, and then over the next century, a number of policing units were established. I think some of the units go back quite a long way in history. The mounted police, I think, were first put together in 1825. That's right. And then the Water Police in 1830. That's amazing. Sydney the, Police. The Water Police created so long ago, almost 200 years ago. Yes, and they were created as different units. And I suppose that's significant. Uh, the Sydney Police in 1833, um, Border Police in 1839. And of course, this, this went on for some time and they started operating as independent police forces and competing with each other as we do uh, in, in the policing world. Um, and then in 1862, um, we became a, a structured police force under the Police Regulation Act, which amalgamated all of those branches or units into one organisation, which is highly contentious, I might say, because we often compete with South Australia. South Australia was the first 
organised police force, centrally controlled, that is, in 1838. And we often talk to them about where history started before 1838. But the key word is centrally controlled, I think. Oh, the national conferences must be interesting. It's a a lot of banter goes on around that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, I think we all understand basically what the police do. Yes. But it's always been um, the role of police to bring matters to court. That's correct. uh, And charge offenders who can then be dealt with by the court. Um, And that's a power that's available to any police officer, is it, to lay a charge? Yes. So police officers would be informant officers for laying a charge. And police officers, um, any sworn police officer, can lay a charge before a court. Uh, There's systems and processes in place now. I imagine back in the 1800s it would have been quite different, simply present that individual to the magistrates and court of petty sessions or wherever. Um, But, yes, any New South Wales police um, has the power to bring charges in in criminal charges uh, before the courts. Well, I want to concentrate on the different components of society mm. uh, for the, uh, to understand what the police can do in relation to, first of all, uh, juveniles. What, what are the police powers in relation to juveniles who may have offended? The powers police have, uh, the police powers they execute are consistent whether they're juveniles or adults. Um, what happens after an arrest, for example, or a detention of a, a young person uh, or interaction uh, depends on on the circumstances. Um, I think we had the Young Offenders Act in, I think it was 1997 from recollection. Uh, prior to that, um, the way that police, myself included, dealt with young people was quite different. Uh, that act put structured processes around cautioning and things like that. Um, we often would caution young people anyway. When you say your processes were different before the Act. Yeah, well, they weren't legislated. No. And so we've always had... Is this the origin of the little Johnny who's up to no good? Yeah. And the the sergeant gives him a stern lecture and sends him home. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. And and it's always existed as police discretion. Yeah. Discretion is one of those things that's um, often debated, but um, it's it's invaluable to policing because as police we need to be able to make decisions around bigger picture things, not just simply the proofs of a particular offence. Because we're not just um, enforcers of the law, we're part of a community and we need to protect the community and ensure safety of the community. And sometimes that's larger than a particular offence that may or may not be detected. And so discretion has always been a part of policing. And I think what the Young Offenders Act did was it enshrined that discretion in a structured way for dealing with young people. And so what does that discretion involve? So I think the, it probably starts with cautioning people on the run. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, it may be a group of young people who are loud and noisy in a park, disturbing people who live around the area. Um, now, prior to the act, the police would just go and disperse them, so off you go. Um, and what the act does is it allows, if those people are detecting, those young people are detected committing a minor offence, a summary offence, for example, um, police can caution them on the run. In fact, the Act entitles them to be cautioned. Um, And all that would involve is a police officer would have a conversation with the individuals, probably move them along, make a note in their their notebook and then... Taking names of people? Names and details. And then the police would go back and, and enter that into a computer system that 
makes the police accountable for their interaction with that individual and acknowledges that a caution was given. Um, so that's that's probably the lowest tier in terms of discretion. So that's that's a caution you you call it. Yes. Uh, is that referred to in the act? That, yes. That so level of caution. So in the act, it's a little bit different, and, yeah. I, and and I probably should correct the record there. So that would be a warning under the act. A warning. Yeah. So under the act, that would be a warning, um, and so under the act, the caution is a little bit more formal. Yeah. And so, uh, my apologies, I, I should have been specific there. Um, Warnings are the bottom of the line. Um, as a police officer, we, we tend to historically um, do all of these things mashed together. It was, yeah. it was either a warning or caution. Yeah. We call it a caution. Sure. And then it would be otherwise it's a charge. But the Act made it. The Act regulated this for us. Yeah. And so, so the, the lowest level is the warning. That's correct, yes. And uh, once given, mm-hmm. does it carry any other consequences? Anyone who's been given a warning... When they come to notice on a later occasion, does the fact that they were given a warning previously matter? Uh, yes, it would inform. It would inform um, the next course of action. I mean, oh, so the computer would enable the police officer to go back and say, "This person has been warned previously, and they've come up again." Yes, yeah. uh, and I think for those matters, I think it's three. I think after three occasions of warning, it changes what we can and can't do. Right. Um, the, the police officers, um, often when they interact with people like this in the street, will check on the radio or on their phone about previous interactions because um, sometimes an alternative needs to be taken in terms of course of action. For example, no, no individual's the same, as you know, and, and so um, you know, giving people a chance is very important for the police force um, and perhaps, you know, diverting children from the justice system is important for us because, in effect, we're the gatekeepers to the justice system. Yeah. People enter the criminal justice system through what we do or don't do. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of programs within the police force around, uh, you know, diverting young people from crime. And we engage these so police, police youth clubs. You see the Rise Up program that's in place to help children get jobs, you know, partner with business and other things. And so... There's a lot of local projects that are done by local police mm. to try and keep children who have gone a little bit wayward mm. out of the justice system. And so a lot of those sort of things um, are important for us as a policing agency because we will never arrest our way out of crime mm. and we have to look at ways of preventing crime. And, and so our current commissioner and our previous commissioners have all focused on trying to break that cycle. And so warnings... And cautions. Are well, then let's, for let's that. do it in in, in, the, in, in steps. Mm. Warning is the lowest level, mm-hmm. and then there's a formal caution, as it's called under the Act. What does that involve? So, a formal caution is is um, as it implies more formal, and so in those circumstances, a police officer would give notice to a young person to attend the police station in company with, uh, you know, their parents or... or So they're given a document. They're given a document. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that document says you need to come in. We're going to caution you about this. Now, that can only happen if if the young person admits the offence. Like everyone else, young people have rights and, and, you know, a right to silence and so on. Um, So one of the the conditions for cautioning is that the young person needs to admit the offence. And again, cautioning can only apply to some offences. Um, under the Act, uh, well, the operation of the Act only applies to certain offences. So, for example, a child 
or a young person suspected of murder would not be dealt with by this Act. It would appear to take no, a different pathway. I think it's summary offences and indictable matters which could be dealt with summarily, I think, is the operation area in which the Act operates. That's correct. Yeah. So the, the person comes to the to station. What happens to give them the... How's the caution administered? What, what's done? Yeah, so... Um, Usually there's a, in each police station there's a youth liaison officer or, what, or now I think they're called a youth officer now. And they're specially trained in dealing with youth. And they would generally be part of the cautioning process at the police station. Um, it's a conversation with the young person. And, and when a young person's cautioned, um, of course, the details of that caution uh, are recorded again. Um, and that young person... Um, agrees in some circumstances to do certain things or not behave in certain ways and so on. Um, police can't force the issue. Um, we can't bind a child in terms of bail conditions or things like that. Uh, there's no bail. It's an agreement that the child will try to do certain things or not do certain things. And some, so An example might be to apologise to the, the person who was harmed or the victim of whatever it is that they did. And is the person who's offended given a document that records the caution and the conditions they've undertaken to fulfil? Yes. And so um, there's a document that gets them to come to the police station and there's a document about outcomes, in effect. And so that's all, again, that's all recorded um, in the police system. And what sort of offences would come up to be cautioned? What, what would be typical? Um, assault, uh, like a low-level assault that doesn't involve serious bodily harm. Uh, so a few punches thrown with Punches, it. fighting, mm. um, stealing, shoplifting, offensive behaviour, um, things like that. Um, of course, there's always considerations around this, around, you know, how, how much harm is caused. But generally speaking, you know, summary offences and, and indictable offences dealt with summarily cover a lot of the lower end of yeah. So, it, in broad strokes, uh, it can't involve domestic violence, for example. It can't involve serious assaults, sexual assaults, um, something occasioning death can't be done. They know. have to be dealt with in the conventional court process. That's right. Yeah. Now, after was in, in the scale of things, there's the warning, the caution, and then I think there's what's called a youth justice conference. Yes. That's provided for under the Act as well. Yes. What's a youth justice conference? It's kind of like a court. But it's not. It's very formal um, in the sense of, in the context of what we've just talked about, it, it is the most formal process. And it's it's conducted um, via the youth officer within each of the police commands who, who engages with other parts of the government uh, and, and the justice system to arrange the conference. I think there's about 17 or 18 um, around New South Wales. And, and these are, they're not magistrates who sit um, but there are representatives of youth justice who sit in administration of the conference. Um, and it, it, the conference will take place in a formal setting, much like a court. Uh, it'll be uh, police prosecutors may may often attend or will attend. Um, and sometimes the victim may or may not be there. It just depends on how it's arranged, depending on the nature of the offence and so on. But um, it, it's a formalised... Uh, way of dealing with these matters that's outside of the court. Now, we've been talking, of course, about 
the processes of diverting juveniles from the court system, when the offender is an adult, do the police have discretions in relation to whether or not they charge adults? So in, in terms of general discretion, yes. Uh, police have a general discretion, no matter adults or children. But in some of the legislative schemes, such as cannabis, cannabis cautioning program, um, there's formal um, cautioning programs put into legislation. Um, the, the, I think the Law Reform Commission said that it should be expanded. Um, but cannabis cautioning for adults is, a, is an example of discretionary um, decision-making by police. Um, it generally involves a small quantity of drug It can't, and generally for personal use. It's not something that would be used for a drug supply. It's not. Um, however, you know, I think that's um, it's certainly used a lot um, for, like, for small amounts of drugs. And again, I, I guess that's um, from a policing perspective, um, you know, keeping people who make one-off mistakes, experimenting with drugs and so on, out of the court system is is in the interests of the whole community um, because often introduction to the criminal justice system through drugs leads to a lifetime of either addiction or offending. And so um, it seems to be working reasonably well, the cautioning program. Uh, I think there's a limit to the number of cautions that can be given. Can you explain that to us? Uh, for cannabis cautioning or generally? Well, both. Generally, both, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm not sure about cannabis cautioning, how many you get. Uh, what the limits there are, but for cautioning of young people, it's three three cautions. After that, they'll be charged. They'll be charged. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it may not have a different outcome uh, to a conference anyway. But I think um, there's only so many times that someone could be cautioned before it's it kind of doesn't work anymore. Now you mentioned that you, for a time, um, were responsible for managing the police prosecutors. Yes. In New South Wales, how many police prosecutors are there? Oh, at the moment, there's about 350 police prosecutors that work from the New South Wales Police. And are they all qualified lawyers? No, about a third of them are. Um, They, we we do try to make sure that our prosecutors have every opportunity to develop. They, they do. uh, All all people, all police who who aspire to be prosecutors. Uh, go through a, a comprehensive training program um, and mentoring. They do a lot of core work, which is where they they really get their skills. Um, that training program takes about 12 months before they're allowed to prosecute on their own. So for that whole 12-month period, they're supervised in everything that they do. Mm. After 12 months, uh, they're allowed to prosecute on their own, but they generally won't be given matters that are exceptionally difficult. And as they become more experienced prosecutors, there's a group, a, a group of about 30 who are our senior advocates who would do the more serious local court matters uh, for, for the police force. Now, is there a police prosecutor assigned to every court in the state? There's a group of police prosecutors at every, for all the courts in the state, yes. Nice. And, and so some of them work in hubs um, and, and some do multiple courts, particularly in the regional areas. They'll travel like a magistrate will travel um, to different courts, um, but in every co- every local court in New South Wales, there will be a police prosecutor who stands up. So, if someone goes into a court somewhere in New South Wales this morning, yep. uh, there'll be a police prosecutor. Yes, absolutely. In that court. Absolutely. 
and they are responsible for prosecuting all of the crimes that come to that court. Is, is, that, is that how it works? Yeah, so all, all the matters dealt with by that local court in a criminal sense are prosecuted by local police beyond, other than a, a, a small minority of that. So uh, it's wrong of me to say all. Uh, 95% of the matters in a local court in a criminal sense are dealt with by a police prosecutor. There are some which are dealt with by the Director of Public Prosecutions on occasion, but it's probably as a result of a trial, for example, falling through and an alternative charge that's a summary charge being dealt with. And if, if a DPP officer has carriage of those matters, sometimes they will carry them back to the local court, but on other occasions they will hand them back to a police prosecutor to, to prosecute. And if, uh, if our hypothetical person was to go into a court this morning, would the police prosecutor be in uniform? Or would he, he or she be in civilian dress? No, they'd be in plain clothes. Right. Um, there was a time when police prosecutors wore uniforms, um, but it was very fleeting. <laughs> Most prosecutors, or all prosecutors, are in plain clothes. Um, and and they would, to all, for all intents and purposes, they would appear to be another solicitor. Not a legal practitioner. At the bar table, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it must be fairly heavy workload for some of them on some days. They have an enormous workload. Um and, and a few years ago, there was a trial that was run by the New South Wales government in the Campbelltown area uh, where there was some talk about moving, getting rid of police prosecutors and replacing them with the director's staff, wholly responsible for prosecutions in the state. And they found that they needed three to four solicitors to do the same work that a single prosecutor does. So they're very efficient that needless to say that that didn't get any legs. No, it didn't no, happen. <laughs> no doubt, due to cost. But yeah. nonetheless, the police prosecutors have an enormous workload and and they become very practised um, in managing the court and, and working with magistrates to manage the court and the court's workload. Now, I assume that they bring to the local court indictable matters uh, and there may or may not be uh, an early hearing in the local court uh, if the matter is then referred on for trial, does the police prosecutor cease to have any uh, relationship with that matter? So it would depend at what point. Um, in the short term, yes. For as long as the a strictly indictable matter, for example, that was running through the EAGB process, EAGP process. EAGP, what's, what's that? Yeah, so EAGP is early appropriate guilty plea. Uh, it's a process that uh, the government brought in place to ensure that the district court doesn't deal with matters, all matters that are strictly indictable in some circumstances where an early plea can be negotiated. Um, it prevents matters going to trial in the district court. And so um, there's a process that can take anywhere between, you know, three to nine months, sometimes longer. It's meant to only take six months maximum, uh, but often that's not the case. And it was brought into the local court process so that the, the Director of Public Prosecutions can determine whether to uh, indict someone for him, for trial at the district court and to speed that process up. Now, in that process, there may be strictly indictable matters which are occurring in local court as they progress through that process. But the police prosecutor will stand up and mention the matters, seek adjournments, often deal with bail applications that occur during the period. And so the police prosecutor is still engaged in those strictly indictable matters in the local court until the point that the Director of Public Prosecution charge certifies. And at that point, 
the Director of Public Prosecution Solicitors will appear. Now, as we all know, sadly, uh, there are many applications for apprehended domestic violence orders that are made in the local court. Do the police prosecutors appear in those matters? Yes, they appear in those matters, and, and they often appear on behalf of the victim in those matters. Yeah. And then the, the youth curry courts and also. Do the police prosecutors appear in that court? They appear in the youth curry court. They appear in the children's court. And they also appear in, in circle sentencing and other things um, that are sort of... It requires a very broad range of skills to yeah. prosecute in each of these places. Yes. We, we're pretty proud of our prosecutors. They do a fabulous job. Uh, you know, they, they have to get their head around a lot of things and... Given that only about a third of them have, you know, completed law training in terms of a legal degree, and and being admitted as solicitors, um, it's it's no no small feat that they can get their head around all of these things, and and be successful in what they do. Do you lose many who go into private practice? Yes, we do. Uh, in fact, we invest a lot. We we often offer scholarships for our prosecutors to to do law, and to be admitted. Uh, we think that's good for their development. It's better for the courts. It's better for us as an organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, they e- even the lawyers that we have that come from the DPP and other walks of life to the police force, uh, they get accelerated in the prosecutors, but they still have to do the prosecutor training. Mm-hmm. And they actually give great feedback that it's very hands-on training. It's mm-hmm. kind of like learning a trade as opposed mm-hmm. to doing a law degree mm-hmm. or, or doing some other degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Um, they get thrown into the deep end. You learn at the coalface. You learn at the coalface. And I think that's – I don't know that you can underestimate the value of that, but we still encourage our police prosecutors to do law degrees. A consequence of that is, you know, after 15 or 20 years as a prosecutor, uh, they go to the private bar. They're or, pretty skilled. They're very skilled, yes. Yeah. Um, well, then, can we just turn attention to the process of sentencing in the local court? What's the role of the police prosecutor? Uh, in the sentencing of an, of an offender? Yeah, so the police prosecutor will present the facts to the court. Um, police prosecutor may... Is that, is that done by document or uh, generally? Well, ge- generally it's the handing up of a fact sheet, but they will speak to the facts orally, depending on the circumstances. It may be, depending on the case, that the facts speak for themselves sufficiently. Uh, most prosecutors would tend to draw the magistrate's attention to certain things as opposed to have a very adversarial legal argument about or or position around um, sentencing. Often the prosecutor, when, when, when a matter is a DV matter, for example, the prosecutor will articulate the impact on the, on the victim. Um, when, it, when it's another matter, for example, a traffic matter, um, the prosecutor will simply present the facts and draw particular, draw the magistrate's attention to particular areas rather than become very adversarial on sentencing. Now, it may be that the defence may raise particular points on those facts and then the magistrate will often ask the prosecutor if they have a view on that. Um, but the prosecutor won't force a view. It, it, I think perhaps on sentence they're less adversarial than, than what you would see in the higher courts. And uh, what about the criminal history of the offender? Do the police produce that for the court? Yeah, so our criminal records section produces a person's criminal history for the court and that is that is handed up to the magistrate via the prosecutor. And what would turn up on the criminal history? 
that we were talking earlier on about warnings and cautions and so on. Yes. Are they on the criminal history or not? No. There would be an alternate for, for the youth conferencing and the cautions. There would be an alternate history. Um, however, a, as a matter of general practice for adults and others, the only history that is presented is not all the interactions with police, but only those that relate to convictions, prior convictions. And so we generate a number of different reports. For example, on a bail application, there would be a full history, including all of the arrests that didn't proceed to conviction. Now, for some crimes, the court will receive a victim's impact statement. Do the police prosecutors play any part in providing those to the court? Yes, the the victim's impact statement, um, particularly for DV and other harm, violence matters, um, will be provided or handed up by the police prosecutor. And often the police prosecutor would address uh, the magistrate on, on the terms of that um, on behalf of the victim. The prosecutors are obliged to keep victims informed of how proceedings are going. They're obliged to represent the victims in court, particularly for DV. And finally, in relation to the information the police provide, the Judicial Commission prepares uh, statistics in relation to offences and penalties. Do the police have access to those statistics? Um, the police prosecutors do. Yeah. Um, police generally no. Right. Um, police prosecutors have a, a, a large amount of um, access to legal frameworks that that other solicitors or barristers would have access to. Um, and they also have access to police records and statistics as well. And so um, they have more access than a general police officer would. Um, and are they responsible for providing statistical information to the court? If they have it, they will do that, yes. Right. Um, but, but it's not often used in terms of um, statistics, um, Police prosecutors do use it um, in the local court, but um, it's not a common argumentative point on middle of the range. It's got to be carefully used. That's it's, right. It's quite a bit of law associated with it. So it's not often that they would use that, and, and generally the cases that they're dealing with, you know, given the limitation of the local court in terms of sentence, um, it doesn't become a big thing for them. Now, in other episodes of the podcast... We will be looking at the special courts that deal with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander offenders. One of those courts is what's referred to as circle sentencing. Do the police prosecutors have any role in circle sentencing courts? Yes. They engage and represent um, victims and, and others in and provide a voice to those people, but... Circle sensing is generally focused on delivering outcomes and agreed positions. And so it's far less adversarial. It's very different to a court. And so um, it's still formal and it's still... I mean, there's some that were done that are done currently out in western New South Wales where, um, where you know, elders and others come to be party, party to that sensing process. Um, of course, it's overseen by an appropriately appointed uh, magistrate or, or uh, judge and uh, police prosecutors um, present facts to that, that group. And it's a, it's a way of delivering outcomes or sensing people within community with proper consideration for 
culture and circumstance. And it has been quite successful, particularly in regional areas in New South Wales. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that grows in terms of its use. Um, the the prosecutor role is not adversarial in that circumstance. Again, it's about presenting the circumstances. We clearly face a terrible problem in relation to Aboriginal offenders, particularly young people, mm. given the proportion of Aboriginal people who end up in custody in one form or another. Mm, that's right. So any approach that attempts to deal in a culturally significant way with offenders, I assume the police endorse? Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't want people in the justice system if we can help it. And if circle sentencing helps keep people out of jail um, but still deals with their offending, um, that's important, particularly in, in regional New South Wales and particularly with young Aboriginal males. A lot of Aboriginal offending is on ab Aboriginal victims in regional areas. And it's important that women and children and others feel safe. And so this type of sentencing um, allows for those cultural aspects to be properly considered and perhaps you know, puts a greater responsibility on community to try and prevent these people entering the justice system because, to be honest, um, people who go to jail um, over time are more likely to learn how to offend. And um, it, it's a significant issue um, and police generally will do anything to keep people out of out of the justice system where, where possible. Um, but on the other hand, uh, police also have an obligation to make sure that people who commit serious crimes are dealt with by the justice system. So, again, we come right back to discretion there, and that's the gateway to justice system, or criminal justice system, via policing. Scott, it's been very interesting to talk to you this morning about the role of police and police prosecutors. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and uh, we will see you again at the next meeting of the Sentencing Council. Thank you very much, Peter. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Assistant Commissioner Scott Cook of the New South Wales Police. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.